If you have a Bible with you, would you turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 1. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you uh, around the worship center, there are some black Bibles you can grab and, and pick up. Feel free to even get up now and go and get one of those and turn to 2 Samuel 1. We'll read the whole chapter to begin. This is God's word for us today. It says, After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, Where do you come from? And he said, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did it go? Tell me. And he answered, The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the younger man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me, and he called to me. And I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes, that is David's clothes, and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul, and for Jonathan his son, and for the people of the Lord, and for the house of Israel." because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where did you come from? And he answered, I'm the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, How is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And David called one of the young men and said, Go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head. For your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son. And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Yashar. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exalt. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. 
You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lays, lies slain on your high places. I'm distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Last night after dinner, my sweet wife read this chapter to our family. And upon finishing the chapter, one of our kids asked me something like, So Daddy, what are you going to say tomorrow? How do you preach a sermon on that chapter? And I told him, quite honestly, I was wondering the same thing myself several days before that. On Monday and Tuesday, I was thinking, boy, really? Should we keep going? Should we combine some chapters? We... Is there enough here? And of course, the more I studied and the more I thought and prayed, the more I saw and the more, the more hidden but brilliant gems emerged uh, for us to mine together this morning in this important chapter. Not a throwaway chapter, an important chapter and a transitional chapter in God's redemptive plan. Not just because it marks the end of 1 Samuel and the beginning of 2 Samuel. You have to remember that 1 and 2 Samuel in the original Hebrew is one book. It makes up one book. Our English Bibles only divide them for convenience. And what they do is they mark the end of the Saul era and then begin to spotlight, well, the sole spotlight uh, of King David in 2 Samuel. That's why they break where they do, but it's a, it's a man-made division, not one they were familiar with in uh, the original Hebrew days. Now, we won't stay in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel throughout the summer. We have two more weeks left, and then we'll move on to some other things as we put this series on ice for a while. Uh, we began it in the fall of last year, so we've been at it for a good long while. But rather than end on 1 Samuel 31, I want to get us to see David on his throne. That's where this whole thing was going all along, right? It doesn't happen instantly. It doesn't happen automatically with the death of Saul in chapter 31. So this week and next, we'll look at 2 Samuel 1. And then 2 Samuel 2, before we put this on ice for a little bit. We've been calling this series, In Search of the King. And we've been seeing, of course, that ultimately, that king is the Lord Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. But we've also seen that for a time in Israel's history, that search for Israel's king landed on Saul. We've also seen that that was a false start. He was a king of the people, a king like the nations and not what God intended. And so all along there's been this man in the wings, one to come, David. David was anointed king to be back in 1 Samuel 16. And ever since then he's been waiting in the wings to eventually ascend the throne some three decades later. Well, he's not really been waiting in the wings. It's not just been on hold. It's not just been delayed. It's not just slow going. God, along these difficult, trying chapters in David's life, was preparing him to be king. 
It was through the suffering that he learned obedience, like Hebrews 5 says of Jesus. He learned obedience through suffering, like Peter says of Jesus. It's sufferings first, then glories to follow. We come to 2 Samuel seeing that the proof is in the pudding, as they say. The pudding of David's suffering and the proof that he is a king, not like the nation's kings, but a man of God's own choosing and a man after God's own heart. That's what 2 Samuel 1 is all about. The proof is in the pudding. But how do we get there in 2 Samuel 1? Well, we start with a report. I have four R's for us this morning. Four R's. The first, the report. The report is an Amalekite account of the battle that occupies the first 10 verses. An account of the battle. What battle? Well, it's the battle that we read and studied last week in 1 Samuel 31. And really, remember, there are two battles happening simultaneously. David is warring against the Amalekites on the same day that elsewhere Saul and his army are warring against the Philistines. Two kings, two different battles, and two very different outcomes. And really, verse 1 of 2 Samuel 1 begins hinting at both of those battles. You see, it says, after the death of Saul. That's one battle with one king and one sad outcome. But then it says, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, another king, another battle, a very different outcome. Not a man perished against the Amalekites with David, but with Saul, his sons died. All his men died in battle. And Saul, mortally wounded from arrows, tragically took his own life. That's what we saw in 1 Samuel 31. But in 2 Samuel 1, David is unaware of Israel's defeat and Saul's death. I mean, why should David know about that? It was only three days ago that he was battling the Amalekites, and now he is in Ziklag, a Philistine city, and sort of his home away from home temporarily. In these days, kids, there was no internet. There was no texting. There was no tweeting. There was no faxing even. Get that. This is before faxes. And so news traveled by foot. And so no surprise that for two days, David is in Ziklag, resting after the battle with the Amalekites, relieved that the battle's done with the Amalekites, rejoicing in God's victory over the Amalekites. And on the third day, behold, it says, verse 2, and on the third day, behold, that's a shift in the story. It's no shift for us, the readers, because we read 1 Samuel 31, and we know what's going to come. We know what's already been done. But for David and his men, it's a jolt when, behold, a man shows up with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. The telltale signs that person is in mourning. And hence he comes as a messenger with bad news. 
because we, the readers, know the account of 1 Samuel 31, which we saw last week, we also know that there's a discrepancy between what the narrator recorded for us in 1 Samuel 31 and what this Amalekite attests to here in 2 Samuel 1. The question is, who killed Saul? In 1 Samuel 31, Saul killed Saul. In 2 Samuel 1, this Amalekite says, Saul asked me and I finished him off. I was kind enough to do it. Some scholars and preachers have tried to harmonize those two. Maybe Saul tried to kill himself, but he was pretty bad at it, and so he was wounded but not dead. I don't think that's the way to go. The author of 1 and 2 Samuel, the historian involved in this, the narrator of this, he told us in 1 Samuel 31 that the king fell on his sword and died. He told us that Saul's armor bearer also saw this happen, and then he did the same. The historian, the narrator of 1 and 2 Samuel, knew what the next chapter would say. He put it there. In fact, he doesn't even think in terms of chapters. Chapter and verse divisions are something that invented about a thousand years ago. He's not thinking in terms of the next chapter or there being a possible conflict that we can't spot He's not asking us to harmonize, but to notice that the Amalekite is lying. He's lying to David. Oh, sure, he was there at the scene. He does have much of the story correct. He must have seen much of this firsthand. Of course, he has the undeniable proof that he was there and that Saul is dead. He has Saul's crown and Saul's armband, a kingly identity marker, you could say. He is also correct that Saul asked someone else to kill him off since he was about to die anyway. But we know from 1 Samuel 31 that that was Saul's armor bearer and the armor bearer refused. And so we know that Saul killed himself. The Amalekite untruthfully puts himself then at the center of the story. The one who finished Saul off, he says. And it's a clever move. It really is. It was a good move politically and pragmatically, humanly speaking anyway. Saul was going to die anyway. He wasn't too aggressive in his violence. It was sort of a gentlemanly murder. Saul was the one who asked him to kill him, he says. He's really only obeying the king's last request. No one was there. Or at least no one else is still alive to contradict the Amalekite story. So what an opportunity this is. He surely thinks David, the king to be, and Saul's most hated enemy, will be thrilled with the news of Saul's death and be thrilled with me as the means of putting him to death. He's probably thinking, reward. There's a reward here. Uh, there's some sort of benefit here. There's, there's some sort of maybe placement into King David's cabinet on the other side of him taking the throne of Judah. It's a great opportunity. It's not a perfect story, though, the way he tells it. You see, in verse 6, he says, By chance, I happen to be on Mount Gilboa. Really? 
in the middle of a major battle between the armies of the Philistines and the armies of Israel. You were wandering around. You were picking flowers or something. You were going on a picnic at the top of Mount Gilboa. While a battle was there, you just happened to stumble onto a dead guy or almost dead guy who's in the middle of the battle. No, you don't, you don't whistle and stroll your way accidentally into a battle scene. No one happened by chance to be on the beach at Normandy that day. So maybe David picked up on that oddity in the story of the Amalekite. Maybe he didn't. We don't know. The point thus far for us, the readers, is the Amalekites' obvious sneaky intentions, his pragmatic thinking, his political jockeying, his conniving, his lying for personal gain. He takes advantage of the death of the Lord's anointed for self-advancement or self-benefit. This might seem arbitrary, like a rabbit trail that shouldn't be mentioned, but I can't help but think of the prosperity preachers here. I can't help but think of those who shuck the prosperity gospel on the TV these days, those who take advantage of the death of the anointed for personal gain. But the point for David, who's hearing this in live time, is in the bare facts of the report. The people of Israel have fallen or fled, and Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. That's what David focuses on, rightly so. And how did he react? Well, that's the second R. The first, the report. Secondly, the reaction. It's an immediate and severe grief. Verse 11, then David took hold of his clothes and he tore them. So did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. It's an immediate and severe grief. It's probably not what we would expect to happen next in the story. Verses 1 through 10 got our attention wrapped up in this lying Amalekite. And so we go into Sherlock Holmes mode and want David to solve the mystery that is no mystery for us because we know 1 Samuel 31. But David takes his eyes off the Amalekite for the rest of the day. It's a couple verses in reading it, but it was until evening, perhaps through the rest of the day. Perhaps it wasn't until the next day that David again has his attention drawn back to the Amalekite. The point is this, first things first, mourning, weeping, fasting, grief for the rest of the day. Other important things can wait. Grieving has its priority. This Amalekite can wait. Judgment can wait. Justice can wait. Information, truth can wait. Grieving must be done. Can you imagine the awkwardness of being the Amalekite, telling David this, giving David the, 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 the crown and the armband and expecting a handshake, maybe with a fistful of money in it or, you know, at least a, a, an attaboy, maybe a certificate, maybe key for the day of the town or something like that. What, you're expecting something and David ignores you completely for the rest of the day as he and his men give themselves over to grieving loudly, visibly, 
emotionally, persistently. He thought David would rejoice at the news of Saul's death. He thought that there might be immediate reward for his part in Saul's death, but there's none of that. Just grief. David was severely grieved with the shocking news of the death of his dear friend and really brother, almost by adoption, his brother, Jonathan. Jonathan was Saul's son and next in line to the throne. But Jonathan saw in David God's blessing in his hand and knew of the anointing. Hence, he knew that David would be king and he covenanted with David He put himself under David. He relinquished the throne to David, his succession to the throne. He he said in 1 Samuel 23, you shall be king and I next to you. Not alongside you, but clearly a, a, a one and a two, a regent and a vice regent. That was the plan. They had plans to to be together on the other side whenever they get through this trial of Saul and his opposition and Whenever David finally ascends the throne, the plan was his right-hand man would be at his right hand. And now he's tragically dead due to the sin and rebellion of his father and the Lord's judgment upon his household. But rather than be mad at Saul, David is also grieved at the death of Saul. There's no way around that. He's grieved at the death of Saul. Now, we'll try to understand that more as we, as we move further along in the chapter, but we can understand it a little bit even just by what verse 12 says. Verse 12 says that they grieved and mourned for Saul and Jonathan. Then the second half, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. You see, that is a theological grief. It is a theological grief. David's grief was personal, but not just personal. It's national. It's theological. This is a defeat of God's people, and hence bad news for the house of Israel, God's people. David doesn't just lament death or loss, but he laments the regression that this is in God's promises coming to their fulfillment. Yes, we know. God promised that Saul would die. And hence, Saul dying is a fulfillment of God's promises. And yet, God also promised long ago, and repeatedly so, that one day his people would defeat God's enemies. They would go into the land, and they would eventually have rest. No more battles, no more wars, no more enemies. Rest, peace on all sides. It was a promise given to Abraham, a promise given to Moses, a promise given again to Joshua. A promise they were hoping to see fulfilled in the Philistines crushing the people of the Lord and their king in the last chapter means that there isn't a progression and fulfillment of those specific promises, but a regression and a delay. And that's part of what that's part of what David grieves. And that's part of why he grieves for the loss of Saul. That's something the Amalekite should have known. That's something he apparently didn't. I think there are lessons for us even thus far about grief in general. There is such a thing as good grief, as Charlie Brown taught us. 
grief deserves its proper priority. There is a season for everything. There is a time to mourn. Even good things like justice can wait when there's grieving to be done. We shouldn't rush grief. We shouldn't rush those who are grieving. We should weep with those who weep and be patient with all, bearing burdens with one another. Grieving is often very emotional, as we see here. It is very personal. But it also should be theological, which means that we should grieve for more than just personal loss. When someone dies, when circumstances are hard, severe as those losses may be, we should also, as David teaches us here, we should grieve when God's name is run through the mud. We should grieve severely when a brother or sister runs from the Lord. We should grieve and pray and seek to help when brothers and sisters in the church refuse to get along, refuse to bear with one another, but instead bite and devour. We should grieve pockets of coldness in the church. We should grieve apathy in the broader church, in Desert Springs Church, and in our own hearts. We should grieve our prayerlessness. We should grieve our Bible neglect. We should grieve our lack of grief. Like Jesus and like David, we should be a people who are acquainted with grief. We are familial, familiar with burdens, with heaviness, with weight. This is a hard world we live in. This is far from perfect. We ourselves are far from perfect, and so we should embrace this and not ignore it. It should also be reflected in our corporate worship. Why do we sing songs like Psalm 3? Well, because it's a psalm, and it's a song. It's an inspired song. God's inspired songs in the psalms often are dark and filled with tears. They lament, they cry out, they mourn. We, a people acquainted with grief, should sing songs that reflect what we've experienced in the last week. We've had enemies oppose us. Oh, probably not even enemies like people, but enemies of Satan and enemies of our own souls and enemies of, of temptation. And we want to bring those to the Lord in corporate worship. And we want to hear, have an atmosphere that has delight when there should be delight and we, and we should have darkness when there should be some darkness. I could say more about that, but we'll move on. The third R we see is the result. The report, the reaction, and then the result. The result of all this is an unintended but instructive execution. From the Amalekites' shoes, the result of this story is an unintended one. He hopes it goes well for him with this news and with these gifts to David for his kingship, but it's the exact opposite. And from within our own shoes, as the reader, the result is an instructive one. It teaches us something about God and his ways and his priorities. So after an appropriate time of mourning, in verse 13, David's thoughts return to this Amalekite. 
he wants to pick at this a little more. Maybe he remembers what he said about, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa that day. We don't know, but in verse 13, he asks him, where did you come from? And he answered, well, I'm the son of a sojourner in a Malachite. By saying that he's the son of a sojourner, he's telling David that he's a foreigner who has grown up and lived in Israel's territory. A sojourner, and this specific Hebrew word for sojourner here, it reflects someone who hasn't yet come to embrace Yahweh as their God religiously or spiritually, but has put themselves in the community of the Israelites under their rules and in their culture and in their land, agreeing to follow those rules and, and be a part of that culture. This guy is a son of a sojourner, which means he grew up in this. He grew up in the land. He grew up under the rules. He grew up in this culture. He grew up under Saul. And it's on that basis that David asks the next question, which is a rhetorical rebuke. Verse 14, how is it you were not afraid to put your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? How did you do that? You know better. You know better. That's David's implied point. Now, this is as good a place as any to hit pause and ask ourselves why this story is in the Bible in the first place. That was another one of the kids' questions last night at the dinner table. They said, what are you going to do with that chapter? How do you preach a sermon on that? And then they said, why is this in there? Why is this in the Bible? And it's a good question, actually. Because if you think about it, First and Second Samuel cover many decades We've seen three decades or so in David's life thus far in 1 Samuel. But we only have about a dozen stories. Think about your life. 30 years, someone represents it with a dozen stories. They might get it right, but why those, right? You might wonder, why those? We know not everything's included. So why this story? It didn't have to be in here, did it? Well, there's a very important reason it's here and it's here where it is. It is the culmination and final proof of David's unwavering resolve to not conspire against Saul, to not take matters into his own hands, to not take the kingdom by force, even though God had promised it, to not raise his sword against Saul, the king of Israel, since God is perfectly capable of taking care of his anointed whenever he chooses even if it seems like 30 years too late. David had spoken of this commitment to his friend Jonathan. Back in chapter 20 there, David made a covenant with Jonathan when, David, when Jonathan requested, do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. That is, my father and my descendants when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth, don't cut off this enemy, Saul. Don't kill him. Don't kill me. Don't kill my offspring. And we'll side with you. We'll follow you, at least as far as I go and my house goes. David agreed with that. He covenanted with Jonathan, and he spoke of that commitment, and he proved it, really, to, to Saul twice. 
Chapter 24 and chapter 26 of 1 Samuel, both chances for David to take Saul out because one, he's going to the bathroom in a cave, and then the other one, he's sleeping right next to his spear. Both are great opportunities. And David sees them as great opportunities to talk of his trust in the Lord and his patience with the Lord's plan. He said to his men in chapter 24, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. He said to Saul in the same chapter, This day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. Some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. In chapter 26, David said to his servant, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, one option, or his day will come to die, another option, or C, he will go down into battle and perish. It happened to be C, didn't it? The Lord forbid, he said, that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. The Lord can take care of his anointed. We already saw at the very end of 1 Samuel that God, in his kind, mysterious providence, allowed David to go down to Philistine land to hide out, and that led to a battle with the Amalekites on the same day that Saul was fighting a battle with the Philistines. God removed him from the place of Saul's death. No one could say, maybe David did it. Maybe David finished him off. Maybe David had a hand in it. Maybe David told the Philistines where he'd be or something like that. No, no, no. In God's providence, he removed even the possible entertaining of David conspiring in, in, in ending Saul by putting David someplace else at the same time of Saul's death. Well, all that, add to that pile of evidence what we see now in 2 Samuel 1 when this Amalekite reports news of Saul's death. Remember, David doesn't rejoice. He doesn't even express relief. You've been on the run in constant danger from this guy who basically adopted you and brought you into his, in his castle, his, his palace, whatever you'd call it back then. He brought you in and, and then began to throw his javelin at you, his spear. He began to hate you and pursue you for decade after decade. David was on the run and hiding in caves and without home. You think he would express relief at Saul's death. He doesn't. He doesn't rejoice, doesn't express relief. He mourns, and so surely he will not give the Amalekite a reward. You see, the Amalekite is like the anti-David in this story. The Amalekite lies, connives, orchestrates, jockeys for his advancement and benefit. But David has proven again and again, and more so in this chapter, he has won to love truth, not half-truths. He's one to resist evil without revenge. He's one to plead rather than punch. He's one who will wait rather than orchestrate. He's one who trusts rather than takes. He's one that prays, 
not one who plays. That's what the Amalekite does. He plays, plays games here. David proves he's ready to take the throne. He's proven his worth through patient suffering. He's proven his trust in God's promises, not perfectly, but consistently and thoroughly and still presently, despite all the severe opposition that he's faced. This chapter is the culmination and final proof of David's commitment to Israel and to Israel's God. And in this chapter, he also proves his worth to lead Israel in his decisive justice. And so he has the Amalekite executed. Verse 16, David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth is testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. It's ironic. The Amalekite most likely is not killed for what he did. He most likely did not kill Saul. But he is killed for what he said he did. And what else can David go by than what the Amalekite said? His own mouth testified what he did and that he should have known better. It's ironic. But it's also instructive, isn't it? For us, this is instructive. This tells us that God's honor is paramount. This shows us powerfully and vividly that God can handle his anointed that God has matters in his hands and we must not take matters into our own. May God give us wisdom to know when it's simple wisdom, when it's simple discipline and diligence to do something, and when it's right for us to stay and sit and wait and not take up and not execute. Lastly, we see the refrain. The refrain. Verses 17 to 27, the rest of this chapter, give us a lesson in lament. It's a poem. A poem with the refrain three times. How the mighty have fallen. In verse 19, in verse 25, in verse 27, David exclaims, How the mighty have fallen. This is one of those phrases that has inserted itself into pop culture and secular culture. And it comes right here from 2 Samuel 1. Technically, this is what we call an elegy. E-L-E-G-Y. It's an elegy. I learned that this week. It's like a eulogy at a funeral, but different in that it's a poem and that it focuses on expressing grief. It's a funeral dirge. It's a requiem. David was a theological poet. Right brain, left brain. He's a good man to show us how to mourn. He's a good man to give us lessons in lament because he wasn't cold and calloused with his theological thought. Neither was he merely emotional and hence whimsical in loose with his theological thought. He's a theological poet and he gives us lessons in the school of lament here. In fact, he intends to make this a lesson. This is not just his own personal exercise in grief that someone happened to pull from his diary later in life and put in Holy Scripture. But in verse 17 and 18, we read, 
that David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, and he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it's written in the book of Yashar. Some sort of book of writings in Jewish literature that's not part of the Bible. We don't know what this book of Yashar was. It's only mentioned in Joshua one other time, and that's it. It must have been some sort of collection of non-scriptural writing that maybe also includes some scriptural writing like what we see here in 2 Samuel 1. It's not a missing book of the Bible, don't think that. But David apparently wanted it cross-published, you could say. We read it from God's holy word. And in it he mourns the shame of Israel in their defeat. He says in verse 19, your glory has been slain on your high places. Your glory has been slain. He's likely referring to Jonathan here when he says glory because at the end of this song, this poem, he says Jonathan has been slain on your high places. But here he puts it in terms of glory. The glory has been slain. The glory of Israel has been wiped out. It's been brought low. He says in verse 20, Tell it not in Gath, a Philistine city. Oh, the Philistines will hear about this, no doubt. Surely they already know about it. Surely it's already been front page of the Gath Times. So David isn't saying, don't let them know. They're going to know. What he means is that he laments the shame. He laments them knowing. He's wishing that that Israel could keep the news to themselves and that the surrounding nations wouldn't know and hence wouldn't mock and hence wouldn't rejoice in Israel's shame. He curses the place where the king and his people fell, Mount Gilboa. You see verse 21, You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you nor fields of offerings. He doesn't really curse them, but it's the place of bad memory. May it be a place of death, for it was a place of death. Then he turns to remembrance, remembering with thanks to God, both Jonathan and Saul. Verse 22, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back. The sword of Saul returned not empty. And if you think this is unfitting for Saul, remember that, yes, David slayed his tens thousands, but Saul had slayed his thousands, and that's a pretty big deal. Verse 23 says, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. From one angle, you could say, sure they were divided. Jonathan cast his lot with David and not with Saul. Yes, but he never left his father Saul. Even to his dying day, he fought alongside him. They were not divided in life nor death. They were swifter than eagles and stronger than lions. He calls on the daughters of Israel in verse 24 to weep over Saul who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet and put ornaments of gold on your apparel. And you might be thinking about now, wait a minute, I thought Saul was a king who took and took and took. I thought he was judgment upon the people who said, give us a king like the nations, and they got just what they asked for. I thought it was a very bad thing for Israel to be under Saul. 
And you'd be completely justified in that line of thinking because it has been the emphasis throughout 1 Samuel. But, but as we all know, we can imagine Saul was not as bad as a Saul could have been. It wasn't all bad, not for everyone under Saul. Not everyone got his full backhand and none of his open hand. Apparently some did receive blessing and riches and ease under Saul. And to those, David says in verse 24, weep, he's dead. Verses 25 to 27 focus in on Jonathan and are extremely personal. Dare I say it, verses 25 to 27 are uncomfortably, uncomfortably personal for our ears. We have to remember this is written 3,000 years ago in a culture on the other side of this world. And so we shouldn't be surprised that some things sound weird to us. Like verse 26, I'm distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. I wouldn't write this to any of my friends. But then again, even today in France, men kiss other men on the cheek as just a simple greeting. It means nothing. So we shouldn't think anything sexual is going on here. The love that Jonathan showed David was indeed extraordinary. Remember, he gave up his kingdom for David. In chapter 18, he gave David his robe he gave David his belt, his sword, the signs of his future succession. He relinquished his right to the throne and gave it to David. So it was a covenantal love. It was a political love, you could say. And in that sense, it's a, it's a friendship in love, a covenant and sacrifice that's deeper even, or a different kind than, even a woman would have with her husband. No woman I know of, certainly not in Bible times, gives up her throne for her husband, but that's exactly what Jonathan did for David. But again, the point of all this is that David is showing us what Jonathan recognized from early on, that David is a different kind of king. The proof is in the pudding, and in the pudding of decades of suffering and righteous responses, David has proven that he's qualified to be the man of God's own choosing, that he is a man after God's own heart. But David also teaches us some things in this chapter. Let me highlight seven quick things that David teaches us in this chapter, some of which we've already talked about, but we'll stack them up together in a list. First, David teaches us how to lament. To lament like David did here in the second half of this chapter is not the same thing as immediate grief, which he did earlier in the chapter. There's a difference between immediate grief and disciplined lament. To lament like this is to construct careful and thoughtful words to fasten our raw emotions to. Did you get that? There's no denying there are raw emotions when facing loss, theological loss or not. And so we should be honest with God with those raw emotions. It's good to let them out, yes, but they can go awry. 
So lamenting like this is to construct careful and thoughtful, theological, truth-oriented words wrapped in emotion in order to fasten raw emotion to truth, to God's ways. Which means that to lament like this, it's an ongoing thing. It's not one and done. It's not read this pill and you'll be better tomorrow. No, David intended for this to be a lesson to Israel in its lament and for it to be an ongoing thing. They'd read this and read this and read this. They're to practice the discipline of lament. Perhaps you've experienced loss in recent days. Perhaps it'd be good for you to do your own theological lament, something you can fasten your raw emotions to because they, they, they run awry in your heart and mind. David teaches us how to lament. Secondly, David teaches us to prize God's honor above all else. Here, David is not consumed with self-justification. He's not consumed with getting his way or being proven right or, or being justified in the circumstances finally in the face of the people. He teaches us to prize God's honor above all else, especially self. Third, David teaches us to love our enemies. His patience with Saul through the years before Saul's death is incredible. Incredible. His kindness, his goodness to Saul is incredible. And now at his death, again, no rejoicing, not even relief, but instead mourning. David teaches us to love our enemies like our Savior taught us. He taught us to turn the other cheek when we're struck on one side, give him the other. He taught us to, to give up our, our coat and our undershirt as well when, when they take our garment. He taught us to love our enemies. And if you say, well, I don't have any enemies. No one's ever slapped me across the face and given me the chance to show them the other cheek for them to slap as well. No one's ever stolen my coat. No one's ever pursued me like Saul pursued David. I'm with you. I don't have an enemy like that right now, thankfully. But you know, all of us have rivals. All of us have competitions. Even if the other person who is that rival doesn't know it. That person at work, you were at one point getting the same pay at the same level, and, and they just keep moving up. They keep moving up. They're no better. They keep moving up. You're watching. Resentment grows, right? And if in God's providence they got bumped down a rung, would you not have some sort of self-satisfaction, some sort of slight smirk, even if in just your head? David teaches us to love our enemies in radical ways. David teaches us also something about honoring those in authority, however imperfect they are. We're told in the New Testament that we should submit to rulers who are over us. We should honor those who are over us in government. We're told in 1 Timothy 2 that we should pray for those who are in authority, in all places of authority, that they would get saved. David chose us. Something about honoring those in authority, however imperfect they are. In Paul's day, he could write in Romans 13, honor the emperor when the emperor was Nero. 
And David could honor the king when the king hated, pursued, was murderous, was ungodly, and he died. So David also teaches us something about how to speak of the deceased, how to think about others' failures. David doesn't lie about Saul in this poetic lament, but he certainly is optimistic, isn't he? He focuses on the good in a way that you didn't see coming, in a way that you or I would not probably write. He teaches us to honor those in authority and those who have passed. And I wonder, is your father a disappointment? Tell it not in Gath or in Albuquerque. Speak well of others. It's a, it's a man's glory to overlook an offense. And that said, you might have noticed that David said nothing about Saul's spiritual life. There was nothing to say. Some people got rich from Saul. Saul did some good battle. There's nothing to say about Saul's relationship with the Lord. And that's a tragically sad omission that should startle those of us who are on this side of the grave one day. People will speak of us. Will they omit everything spiritual? Oh, he had a good job. He, he was a hard worker. He was really smart. Man, what a great guy. What a warm handshake he had. Hmm. Will they say anything about your soul? and your walk with the Lord. And yet, David's lament also should remind us that the final verdict is God's. Not what people will eulogize about us at our funeral. Some people get close to death, they get on in the years, and they think about their own funeral. What are they going to say? How will I be honored? What things will people remember? Who will get up? Who will want to say something? What have I done? Well, David's public lament of Saul's death here in this chapter should remind us that whatever people say at your funeral, good or bad, it is not the same as God's final assessment and judgment. What David said well of Saul in this chapter is not what God will say in the judgment. And hence, lastly, there's comfort. David points ahead to the only one who can guarantee that verdict before the Lord on that day. Jesus is the only one who can guarantee now your verdict before the Lord on that day. He died on the cross for our sins. And by grace, our sins can be forgiven. We can be restored to him in fellowship. We can be justified. That can be the verdict now. Do you hear that? Do you hear that, sinner? Those of you who are starting to realize your sin and your guilt and you're groping for answers and help. You could be justified today. You could be made right with God now. Cling to the Savior. Hope in his cross. Believe in his name. And you shall be saved now and forever. Because Jesus suffered righteously. Jesus suffered patiently. Jesus suffered in our place. He suffered to bring us to God. And if that's ours, we know his forgiveness. 
then Jesus also suffered as an example for us. Just like David, who suffered and learned obedience through it. Suffering now, glories to follow. So it is with us. We suffer now. Glories shall come. They shall be ours. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for your help. and We pray for your help to apply it. To apply it right now and throughout this week, we pray for your help, Lord. To be strengthened in our suffering. To see a suffering Savior is our only hope and is the path we want to walk. Help us, Lord, to be familiar with his sufferings. Help us, Lord, to be a people who are acquainted with grief because it's a grief-filled world we live in. And yet help us, Lord, to be more than just stricken with grief and aware of suffering, Lord, but filled up with joy. Restore unto us the joy of your salvation for your namesake and glory. Amen.